Good evening. It is so good to be with you guys tonight. I'm Alan Green. I know almost everyone here, uh, but it's been a little while since I've been here. My wife Heather and I, we used to be members here and we've moved a little while back. Uh, We have a son now. He's in the nursery, so our family's a little bigger. But it is just so much fun to be here with all you tonight. And we just thank you for continuing to minister to our family, though we're not a part of this body. So thank you for letting us be here. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. Zechariah is the second-to-last book in the Old Testament in our English Bibles. And so as you turn to Zechariah 12, I want to tell you a story to kind of introduce the message tonight. Um, when Heather was pregnant with our son Asher, we got to have a few ultrasounds, and it was so cool. We went into this dark room, and we looked at this monitor, and we saw our son growing inside of Heather. We saw this black and white image, and we could see him moving, and we could see his insides and how complex he was, and we could see his uh, skeleton structure and just how he was being built, and it was so neat. And then Asher was born, and we got to hold the real guy in our very arms and see his flesh, and it's been so much fun to see him grow. He's almost one year old now. Um, and it, we, when we, got, when we took, had that ultrasound, we got to take some photos with us. We'd show our family. This is our son, that black and white little image of our son. But when Asher came, when he was born, we didn't really look at those pictures anymore so much because we have Asher. We have the real guy. But sometimes... It's cool and it's neat and insightful to look back at those uh, ultrasound pictures. You can, you can almost see, in some ways, different things. You can see the inside of Asher. You can see his structure and what he was built like. And in a similar way, when we come to the Bible, the Old Testament is full of all these prophecies and these uh, pictures and anticipations about a coming uh, Christ who would redeem. And when we turn to the New Testament, we see the Word become flesh. We see Jesus who walked the earth. And we read about the very words He said and the people He encountered and what He did. And so when we come to the New Testament, it's so neat to learn about what Jesus did. But it's also helpful to go back to the Old Testament and to understand what those familiar with the Scriptures were looking for, to understand the context that Jesus would come into and what they were expecting him to do. So it's beneficial for us to look at the Old Testament to understand who Jesus is. And that's what I want to do with you tonight from the book of Zechariah, to look at the Old Testament to see who Jesus is. So I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 10. I'm just going to read six verses. Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David... And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadarimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David, 
and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of being able to come in front of your word to hear you speak. God, thank you that you're not silent, but you have spoken to us. And Lord, I beg that tonight you would pour upon us your spirit. We pray you'd pour on us the spirit of grace and supplication and that you'd cause our eyes, please Lord, to look on you whom we have pierced. And I pray that you would open up a fountain of life for us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was in Kroger, and I, uh, I know, yeah, and uh, there was a magazine, and one of the, the headlines on it read something like, Jesus saves primetime television, something like that. And it makes me think, do we really understand what Jesus uh, did, what his mission is? Do we think about him rightly? Do we understand what he wants for us and from us? So tonight... Thinking back on this passage in Zechariah, I just want to try to address those questions. What does Jesus really look like? What does he want for us and from us? The book of Zechariah, Zechariah lived near the end of the Old Testament period. In the Old Testament history, the people of God, they sinned against God, and God, in his faithfulness and justness to his covenant with them, exiled them to foreign lands but in God's grace, he brought a remnant of his people back to the promised land. And it was their duty to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. And it's in that context that Zechariah encouraged those people. The Lord raised up Zechariah to encourage those who are building the temple to keep on working. And it seems that one of the Holy Spirit's strategies through Zechariah was to prophesy of the good and big things that God was going to do through the work that the people were doing. So Zechariah talks about the future of Zion, the future of Jerusalem, the future of the temple. And so these people who are building with bricks or whatever they're using to build the temple, they were encouraged, I know something great is going to happen with this. But one of Zechariah's common, big, great things that he looks forward to is a coming Christ who would do a great work. This is really cool. In the last six chapters of Zechariah, chapters 9 through 14, it's like a messianic prophecy gold mine. There's all these prophecies of Jesus. I learned in preparing this message that the New Testament passion narratives, that is, the narratives about Jesus' passion, the end of his life, they cite those six chapters, the last chapters in Zechariah, more than any other portion in the whole Old Testament. So in those chapters of Zechariah, we, we read about a king who would come humbly to Jerusalem on a donkey. And of course, that was fulfilled by Jesus when he came to Jerusalem with his triumphal entry. We read about 30, silver, 30 pieces of silver, and this was connected to the amount of money that Judas betrayed Jesus with. We also read about a shepherd who would be struck and sheep scattered, and that was fulfilled in the New Testament when Jesus was arrested and many of his disciples fled. But tonight, I want to look at this passage that we just read, and it seems to have a slightly different context. The passage that we just read appears to be not referring to a time where Jesus has been misunderstood, like much of the Jewish leadership did when Jesus was crucified, when he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. They didn't see him for who he was. They didn't see that he was their long-awaited king, as Zechariah had prophesied. But in the portion of Scripture we just read, we read of a time when Jesus will be recognized, when people will look 
on whom on the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him they will understand their eyes will be opened so who is the who are the people in this passage and when will this prophecy be fulfilled well some might see this as an end times thing where many or most ethnic Jews will believe on Jesus and be saved this might be along the lines that Paul speaks of in the end of the book of Romans when he seems to anticipate a large amount of Jews being saved. Or perhaps this uh, is Zechariah using Old Testament imagery to symbolically refer to the New Testament church made up of many different people groups. The New Testament does use symbolic language like that to refer to the church. To be honest with you, I don't know who and and when this will take place. Maybe it's some combination of those two. But tonight, I don't want to focus so much on the when or the who, but on the what. What has happened here when these people, when they mourn because they look upon him whom they have pierced? And I think that that experience that we read about, the what, is similar or common to everyone who's put their faith in Jesus. So tonight, I just want to look with you at three different aspects that we learned from Zechariah about rightly looking upon Jesus. Three aspects. The first one is, when we rightly see Jesus, our hearts are broken. When we rightly see Jesus, our hearts are broken. That doesn't seem very happy. It doesn't seem like in that way that prime time is going to be saved. But that is what we read. Look here at the first verses we just read, Zechariah twelve ten. Here God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. So the, the source of our broken hearts doesn't come when we rightly analyze Jesus. It doesn't come when we use our, our scientific brains to study this first century carpenter teacher and really understand it. It comes from God. It comes when he pours out his spirit. And our hearts then are able to see. We are dependent upon God to reveal who Jesus is. And it's only when God reveals who Jesus is to us and we see clearly who Jesus is that we see our own hearts, that we see how bankrupt we are, that we see our great sin and the position that we're in and our great need for Jesus. And therefore, our hearts are broken. So we're dependent upon God to pour out his spirit on us, his spirit of grace and supplication. Perhaps this is referring to his spirit, which reveals the grace that God has shown to us through Christ and calls our hearts to supplication, to pray, to want to know God. And it's only when God pours out that spirit, continuing on in, in, in the verse here, that we look upon him. Continuing, it says, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now, when Zechariah's audience first heard this, they probably thought about God the one whom they have pierced, they probably would have understood that, that one day there would be a group of people, and even they back then were in that group, who would misunderstand, who would sin against God, and therefore pierce God's heart. And surely it's nothing less than that. It's nothing less that God's heart was pierced. But we learn in the New Testament that it's more than just an emotional breaking of God's heart that our sins have caused, but there was actually a physical piercing that took place when Jesus died. This is really neat. I'm going to read from the Gospel of John. This is John the Apostle speaking about what he saw when he saw Jesus hanging on the cross. John 19, starting in verse 34, says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. 
And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass, to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John saw Zechariah's prophecy being fulfilled in his very eyes. First person, he saw this one who was anticipated being pierced. And he connects this Jesus to that one who would be looked upon. So when God pours his spirit upon us, we're unable to look. We're unable to look on Jesus and to see him clearly, to see that we are guilty and that he has been pierced for us. And that is what leads us to our broken hearts. From there, we're led to, in the verse, to a state of mourning. Zechariah gives two metaphors, two pictures of what this mourning looks like. The first is the mourning of a, a child who has died. He says here in Zechariah, in the latter part of verse 10, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. I can't imagine almost anything more painful in this human life than a child dying, when a parent has to bury their own child. And many of you probably know parents, or even maybe yourselves have experienced this horrible thing. And the Bible tells us that death is an enemy. It's a result of our sin. So any death that a human dies is not the way God intended in his very good creation in the beginning. But somehow even still we know that the death of a child, it it seems worse though. It seems worse than someone who has lived out their full life. The death of a child, it seems so backward, so opposite. An unfulfilled hope for a life. And this is one of the metaphors Zechariah uses to, to show the deep brokenness that we need to have before Jesus. To show us what our sin has caused. That he was pierced because of our sin. And Jesus didn't die His act of death wasn't robotic. It wasn't, I'm going to do this because it's what needs to be done. He did it with passion and with love, willingly, for you and for me. And when we see that, our hearts are broken. The other metaphor that Zechariah uses to show this mourning comes in verse 11. He says, In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadarimon and the plain of Megiddo. This might refer to the Old Testament King Josiah's death. King Josiah in the Old Testament was one of the few kings who was, who was pretty good in what he did and what the Bible records of him. Josiah was wounded in the plain of Megiddo and he later died in the city of Jerusalem. A, a godly leader can have a tremendous impact for those he leads. The Bible records about Josiah uh, ridding a lot of idolatry in his time. He, Josiah, led the people in observing Passover. And his death, like any godly leaders, leaves an incredible gap and can have tremendous moral consequences when a godly leader is gone. It's like a boat that had a strong sail on a direction and the sail's gone and then the boat's just lost in the, in the, in the waves of the ocean. Two devastating metaphors Zechariah uses here. The death of a child and the loss, it seems, of a great leader. And so, if we're going to see Jesus rightly, our hearts are going to be broken. 
when we rightly see Jesus, our hearts are broken. The New Testament leads us in the same direction. It shows how this very thing is fulfilled. Listen to two different cases of this. In the book of Luke, Luke records an incident where Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for a meal. Jesus goes to that meal, and while he's there, a woman who who Luke calls a sinner comes in and weeps over Jesus' feet. She cries, she anoints Jesus, she kisses his feet. And kind of one of the peak moments in this story, in this account, Jesus says to the Pharisee who invited him, For this reason I say to you, her sins, referring to the woman, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Until we are broken before the cross, until we see our sin, we will not value the cross for what it is. We will not, until we see how much we need to be forgiven of, we will not love Jesus much. So to see Jesus rightly, we must have a broken heart. Similarly, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, when Peter is preaching to many people, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And Peter goes on, but then later on, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Until our hearts are broken, we will not value the cross. Until we see our need for a Savior, we will not love Jesus much. So I ask you and I ask me, do we mourn for our sins? Are our hearts broken? Do we look upon him who is pierced? Um, for me, a lot of times when I sin, my, my repentance, my, my ask for forgiveness is kind of just like a check the box kind of thing. Like, God, please forgive me for my sin. Keep on going with life, whatever. And I don't really take to heart what God has done. And I don't really uh, believe that my sin was that bad or else I would, I would see and I would agonize over the sin that I've done. And so we must pray for the spirit of grace and supplication that the Lord would pour his spirit on us, that he would give us eyes to see, to look on him who was pierced for us and in the midst of our busy lives to see him who died in our place. And if you have never looked upon him, I urge you to look upon him I urge you to pray for his spirit of grace and supplication and to be broken in your hearts for your sin because our sin caused Jesus to be pierced. So the first point again, when we rightly see Jesus, our hearts are broken. The next point, point two, when we rightly see Jesus, boundaries are broken. When we rightly see Jesus, boundaries are broken. Our human society has all kinds of boundaries. There are different roles in families, husbands, wives, children. There are different jobs, uh, kings and queens and, and, and the pastors and all kinds of different jobs. There are different people groups. And when I say boundaries here, I don't mean any negative connotation. Many of those are good things. They're just differences that God has designed into our world. But when it comes to us standing before God and being right with Him, 
all the boundaries are broken. We're all in the same plane. We're all in the same sinking boat. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no category of people has any advantage, any up. None of us can come forward and present ourselves to God and be found worthy because even our good works, Isaiah tells us, are filthy rags. So we are all in need of a Savior. Check out what what Zechariah continues to say here in verse 12. It says, The land will mourn every family by itself. And later on, a little, little way elsewhere, it says they're wives by themselves. I'm, I'm reminded that there are no grandchildren in God's kingdom. You can't be grandfathered into the kingdom of God. Every individual must look upon the cross. Every individual must have a broken heart and mourn because we have pierced Christ with our sins. There's no, there's no advantage that we may have. So every individual and every family, it's not just that, that Zechariah is looking for a time when generally the whole nation of Israel might worship God. Every individual family he anticipates. Also, look at the, the, the different people that are named here. Continuing on in verse 12, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. David, of course, was one of the great kings of the Old Testament. Very royal, very high in status. But even David, at his royal status, has no advantage over anyone else before God. He, too, and the royal people like him, must mourn. Our president, he must mourn. There is no person who is so high that he will be received by God as righteous by his own merits. In a similar way, Isaiah 52, verse 15. This is another Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah says, Thus he, this is referring to the coming Jesus, will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. So no status in our society will ever make us more right with God. Continuing on, Verse 13 in Zechariah, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. Levi, the, the Levites in the Old Testament were, were a, a religious leadership group. So even religious leaders, even religious leaders have no advantage before God in being right. We are all dependent upon Jesus to be made right before God. And though Zechariah doesn't spell it out specifically, we know from other places that there's no people group that has an advantage. All peoples are in need of what Christ offers. And we know that all people groups, all tribes and tongues will be represented in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus died for people of every tribe and tongue. But listen to Revelation 1.7. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I don't think that this morning here is the morning over sin. I think, in this case, that this is the morning because these people, they did not receive Christ in time, and that they will see Christ when he comes, and that he will bring judgment upon them. This is why missionaries are going around the world bringing the gospel to all kinds of people groups. This is why Hasso and the Teclets are seeking to reach people with the Bible being translated into people's mother tongues. This is why Ken Dillard seeks to bring the gospel to college students because when we see Jesus rightly, all boundaries are broken and everybody 
is in need of what Jesus offers. So are we on that mission with Jesus? Are we seeking to spread his gospel to all nations? Do we have divisions in our mind? Do we think uh, this person is less likely to be saved because of what they're wearing or how much money they make or what their mental capacity is or uh, what people group they're from? Jesus breaks all those boundaries. And are we willing to pray that God would send his spirit of grace and supplication on all nations, on all peoples? I know I need to be more disciplined to pray for for the nations to receive this one who was pierced. So first, when we rightly see Jesus, our hearts are broken. Second, when we rightly see Jesus, boundaries are broken. And finally, thirdly, when we rightly see Jesus, death is broken. When we rightly see Jesus, death itself is broken. Zechariah 13, verse 1. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Death is a result of man's sin, but God in his grace has set up a plan that he would send his own son to be pierced for us to break this death and to open up a fountain of life for all who would receive him. Let's remember back again what John experienced when he saw Jesus dying in John 19.34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And when that blood and water came out of Jesus as he was pierced, fulfilling this prophecy, there was also a fountain of spiritual life opened up so that we wouldn't be destined to judgment, but that we would be given a life that we don't deserve in Christ. This is the longing of every heart. Every heart of every person in the whole world has a hole in their heart. They need and desire Jesus. More than any kind of steps, any kind of instructions about how to have a better day, more than any kind of instructions of how to cross off all these different things so that you can be a good person. Everybody needs Jesus. And this is what we have to offer as the church. This is our hope. This is the one that we rest in because Jesus has broken death and opened up a fountain of life for us. And it's not just a message for those who have not been saved. It is that, of course. For all have sinned, and we need Jesus, and so believe in him if you never have. But if you have believed in him, this is our daily place to rest in Jesus and the life that he offers. If you are struggling uh, to, to believe that God has forgiven you, if you're struggling with sin, trust and rest in the fountain of Jesus each and every day. Preach that message to yourself. Think about here the value that the New Testament authors put on Jesus. This is John in his, in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We have an advocate. It's not that we got to work harder and get these things right and, and really got to try hard. We have an advocate in Jesus. He is our source. He is the fountain who's been opened up. Think about the value Paul puts on Jesus. In Ephesians 3.8, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. 
So may we rest in what God has done for us in Jesus. Because the sun was pierced, a fountain of life has been opened up for us. Let's pray. Father, we give you great praise and thanks for what you have done. Lord, we are undeserving in your sight. We deserve nothing but your judgment. Lord, but you have sent your son who was obedient to death. He was pierced for us. And we thank you for the gift of life that he gives us. Lord, and we pray that as we leave here that you would send upon us day in, day out, your spirit, that we would see you each day and that we would rest in you. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.